listening to Surplus Bulbs, a radio show by Ed Hicks, written and recorded in Hackney. Episode 4, The Park. Parks are semi-natural, intentionally planted spaces set aside for the enjoyment of the everyday citizen. They are located in cities, towns, villages and estates. But at its core, the park is a garden, an area free from agriculture, wherein nature is tamed. It is guided by human and divine hand and protected by a high wall. What is on the other side of this wall? Chaos, the unknown. A world without structure or law. These things that society is imposed by the guiding cultural norms or moral frameworks. The resulting synthesis of nature and culture in the garden can be seen as the optimal state. Just enough rules to avoid chaos. Just enough wilderness to avoid stagnation. One can immediately tell a park where nature has the upper hand. The grass is high and unkempt. Weeds abound. Roots disrupt paving stones, vines creep up lampposts, and it is returning to the woodland form that it held pre-civilization. Boundaries, the high walls that kept everything in place, are demolished. Chaos reigns. So thus, without proper care, the once formal landscape becomes grotesque, obscene, and unknowable. Conversely, and perhaps worse, one can easily tell when there is too much order in a garden or park. With no aesthetic eye or consideration, you will be presented with a utilitarian collection of plants and trees set out like office furniture. Areas are randomly covered in tarmac, or greeneries dried out or wilting. Going too far on both directions, either from neglect or poorly crafted design, the park only magnifies its urban surroundings, becoming a wasteland. Commanding no pride from local residents, it becomes a fly-tipping hotspot. Covered in crisp packets, broken toys, torn-up film posters, discarded trainers, car tires, piles of refrigerators, corpses of cats, rabbits, horses. It is sprayed top to bottom with obscene words, angry calls for revolution, telephone numbers where you can ring for sex workers or to go watch gangland murders take place. Barrel fires burn in the night. People become bestial on homemade amphetamines and moonshine. And soon we see a Boschian hellscape where the very worst of nature is perpetuated on itself by itself again and again with neither pity nor shame. But a well-planned park where balance is correct is a thing of true wonder. The chaotic flourishes of nature are constrained, yet allowed to express their own vitality, showering you with petals and blossom in a vegetative symphony. All is controlled and artfully manicured. Its well-trimmed grassy verges calm the mind. Its playful water features cast you back to images of childhood 
where summons were eternal and where you were safe and loved. The well-planned park gives respite to the frenzied, directionless existence that you have built for yourself. And now you drift through dappled light as if in a daze and reach out to touch the face of a fallow deer that approaches without concern. You meet old friends, gone for years. You meet long-dead relatives that impart to you wisdom from beyond the grave. And in a perfect rose garden in the center, where thornless blooms grow huge and fragrant, you are finally united with your one true love. Hitherto unknown, but in whose eyes you see an eternity of wonder. White doves alight on each of your shoulders. And culture and nature, the two guiding principles, lay their blessings upon you and your new love for all time. To the Acting Chief Officer of the Park Supervisory Board, Dear Sir or Madam, I'm writing to inform you of the heinous state of my local park. I am a dog walker. Dog walker. I regularly use this green space for exercise and relaxation. You must have noticed the state of the fountains, both front and aft, that seem to be currently filled with a brackish-smelling ooze. The bowling greens are by no means taken care of. It was only last week I saw an appalling makeshift altar where the ritual sacrifice of a hundred naked slaves was performed. The public toilets have been taken over by a biker gang, who I'm told have built an underground meth lab run by indentured servants bought by the local comprehensive. Due to the extensive industrial chemical waste, you must be aware that all the bird life is currently mutating into leathery winged bat-like things that feast on local dogs. This has made walking my own whippet utterly untenable. Untenable. Which only God alone knows how the local residents get a minute's sleep. On my return from Waitrose, Waitrose. I was violated by these things. I have been mugged, beaten, I've had organs removed, Organs. I've been bled almost dry. I was prematurely aged by some sort of spell from the ice cream cellar. Mm. And naturally, I have spoken to the local police station, but they don't seem to have the slightest bit of interest. <coughs> Yours sincerely, Margaret, from Stoke Newington. Margaret from Stoke Newington. Right. Tarmac, mud, grass, and the grey above. I am kicking leaves at the side of the path, blowing steam at shiny black crows, while fuss-pot pigeons decamp to the flats and dark chains circle the monument. There is little left in November, and chimney smoke hangs in the air like it has forgotten something. Another small dog, scuttling awkward, and now another, 
The dogs are getting smaller with every year, bum to muzzle in fake fur wraps. The fur we bred off them, now replaced with polyester. How long will it be before they have shrunk to the size of actual garbage rats? Tiny wizened packs swarming the streets, riding each other in frenzied doorways and pooping out billions of micro-mongrels. Protected by the RSPCA law and YouTube, they are now left to multiply ad infinitum, covering Trafalgar Square and shivering bug-eyed scrabblers. Where once pigeons coo-burbled, now the yip-yap echoes across the rooftops. Their tiny shits cover every surface. Children now have to go round in those inflatable beach bubbles to avoid being eaten or jumped up with a billion turd-related illnesses. The parks are walled off in an effort to contain them, but they break out. Waves of Shih Tzu crosses, bowling down Shanghai's Lost in my vision, I narrowly miss being cycled into. The fog breaks, and coming the other way past the disappearing bicycle twat is a squadron of fifty-something jogger ladies, all of them swinging their day-glow legs up and down in formation goose-step, active wear Nazis. I had always thought that when National Socialism finally came to East London, it would have been in the form of ironic hipster memes gone too far, not these menopausal platoons. Lost again, I see the tight, proud nod of a square-jawed aunt pumped on matcha tea and prescription steroids, stepping down off a ladder and looking up at the swastika she has painted over the John Lewis sign. Folding the steps, she makes her way back into the department store, its windows already showing black and red displays of jackboots and vicious-looking billy clubs. My name's Jeff. Worked in the park for six years. Sometimes you get uh, community service boys come to help, but they don't do much. I don't let them on the mowers. I'm not married. Nah, nah. There was, you know, there was someone. Oh, of course. But, you know. So I do two things here. I tidy it up. And I sort out the, you know, the damage done by the bloody kids. And a, and a garden and all. So, so I suppose that's three out really. You know, it's a bloody disgrace. I blame them video games, I do. Pull the gates off the hinges, they knock over the bloody bins, kick the bollards down, break off the branches and chase each other round with them, pull out the saplings. Hey, what you supposed to do with a sapling? It's supposed to grow. The horrible dog shit everywhere and dig up all the bulbs and that's only in the daytime. No, 
night that come down and they smoke the weed or do them bloody balloons cover the place in that scribbly graffiti rubbish you can't read it I'll say the best music there is is the boss Bruce Springsteen No question. I had to do something about them kids. Got one of the old uh, boiler suits and glued all these twigs and leaves on it, like you know. And I just spent all day just waiting down there, you know, where they hang out. But the day come, no one noticed. Like they're on a mission to, to destroy everything in the kiddies area. The place was getting wrecked every night. So I'm in my shed and I've got this old slide from way back and he'd have been knocking around the back of the uh, you know the compound where I keep all the tools. Anyway, so I uh, closed off the sides and put some holes in it and I brought it down to the play area and climbed inside. Ah, I'd definitely catch him, that's what I thought. But you see, I go to bed quite early. I'm up, up with a cock, as I say, you know. And uh, it was so warm in there, in my big coat, that, uh, that I fell asleep. And I woke up at six the next morning and the little fuckers had graffitied all over my slide. So I was reading the free ads and someone had a bit in there, you know, like in the classifieds where people like give stuff away or they sell it, you know. And it just said, brown bear. So I called him up and he was like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's like a bear, you know, like a, like a, a live bear. And he wouldn't tell me where he got it. So uh, he just wanted to know if I wanted it and that there were some other people interested. So, you know, so I went down too far from here actually and he was right it's uh well it he was a bear in a cage it looks sad to be honest I felt sorry for it this bloke says to me I think he looks like you. And I was like, he's a beaut. What do you want for him? This bloke says, Andrew Necker. I just need him off my hands and, you know, like we're moving to a smaller place, you know. Can't really manage it anymore, he said. And I thought, this is it. This, this is what I've been after. Now, I don't have a garden and I live in the flats over there, so so we get the cage in the van and, you know, it's bare. Don't seem to mind that much, you know. And I managed to haggle this bloke down to, to 70 and that's it. He was mine. And that's when I thought, we've got this now.
We've got it. So I'll go back to the compound area. Backs up onto the kiddies, kiddies play park, you know. So what I did was cut a door in the fence and, and built a, like a wire pulley system so I could stand outside, you know, like with a compound. And the kiddies area was just like, it's just there, you know, it's really like convenient. And so how it works is I just pull this rope and then the gate, um, the gate just opens. And I, th and I think, you know, like, great, Bear's gonna love this. And, and I, I don't really think that he could dig, so I just made this little area for it, you know, like, well, by this time I was calling him Bobby. Made this little area for Bobby in the compound and then at night, when I, you know, when everyone else had gone to bed, I got everything out with my bell, that a ring, and I go back and open that little hatch. let him into the kids area and he'll be there all night you know it's perfect and you know what it bloody worked those little fuckers they they come in there no more no one there's a great bloody big bear wandering around nope so that was it me and bobby i put up all these branches you know like all the ones that the bloody kids had broken off and i still come around bobby's area and so when, um, you know, like, the representatives come round, they couldn't see nothing. And that was it, really. Headlines in tonight, a North London teenager is in critical condition after apparently being mauled by a bear. You don't talk about that lad that lost his arm, do you? Well, it's like I say, trespassers get uh, passed, passed on. No, it's trespass. If you trespass, that's it's, it's, if you trespass the past. Nah, it's gone anyway. Bobby got the fuck's arm. So, um, do I feel guilty? Nah, not really. I mean, it's sad. You know, his mate's got him to hospital. I, I don't really know anything about it. It's until morning when I came down and there's this big truck thing and they're taking him away. So, sad, I think he... I think he really, you know, like, he really likes it here. Well, that was that. The representatives were all happy, though. But they've got insurance. Everyone's got insurance these days. Sad without him. Kid stayed away for about a month after. But then I started seeing the little scrawls again. And the spliff butts and the dog shit and the crisp packets and... Well... That's why, uh, that's why I've got this gun.
my cycle through park all the time. It's my main route into town. And often see people sitting on benches, taking the sun, or families with children, you know, trying out their bicycles. And sometimes in the little sort of pavilion things, you'll see somebody drinking cider or whatever. And people running, of course. Um, it's quite a sort of generally a calm park. So you could sit and have a cup of coffee and see the kids. And so that's been a great um, positive addition, I think. And I remember Joe and, and uh, Dan used to sneak onto the onto the um, the tennis courts to play without having to pay. I knew there were lights that went um, across the park. But I think it's just that thing of the dark, you on your own crossing in the dark. Most of us have fears of the unknown, and so when it's in the dark, you can't see, so you don't know what's going to happen. I think that's it. I mean, when I lived with my folks in Broadchalk in the village, I used to love going out along the back lane in the dark, round to the neighbours. It felt like, I loved the dark, it felt like a sort of a cloak wrapping around me. And, and I love walking down Holway Hill in the dark. I never put the, you know, my torch on. And I've always gone out when it's dark and popped across the shop and, and I've never worried. And I think I told you, did I tell you? That I went out, so at eight o'clock it was dark. And I decided I wanted some custard. So I went to the shop and then there was only one other person in the shop and it was a chap with a bobble hat and he was buying a can or something and, and I didn't think anything of it but as I left and of course always in the past the pub opposite has been lit up and it was so quiet and the pub was dark and there was nobody else about but this guy who hovered on the corner by the post box so I crossed fairly smartly to the hallway hill entrance which of course is completely pitch black and i noticed that he crossed the road also in that direction and i was so frightened i just absolutely ran around the corner and luckily i hadn't i hadn't locked the door i'd simply pushed it too so i just pushed the door in slammed it shut and put the thing down and my heart was absolutely going like the clappers. It really felt eerie that evening. Are you recording all this, Ed? Yes, of course, totally, totally, absolutely. Oh, gosh. <laughs>
There is a homeless man. He is walking along the main drive into town. It is late afternoon, almost evening. The cars are gridlocked on the way back to suburban dinners and TV. The man is around 50. He's possibly Laotian or Thai, and his hair is matted into thick, guttering dreadlocks that hang down over a knee-length puffer jacket that may at one time or another have been blue. We recognize him. He's been a fixture of the town for many years. He has many nicknames, but his true identity remains unknown, as he never communicates with anyone. You can see him randomly once or twice a week, walking in slow, shuffling footsteps here and there, bent almost double, all the way over, as if impersonating a croquet hoop, or the letter N. He never seems to look up from his path to acknowledge passers-by, and his smell is utterly indescribable. People assume that he's some kind of mental problems as he traces lines around the town every day, his body bent double, staring at the ground. But look now a little closer. Watch how his eyes are fixed on a point on the ground as he makes his slow progression down the avenue. Follow his line of sight. What is that? On the floor. Something moving in front of him. A spider? It is an ant. One single solitary ant. We now begin to realise that for years he has been on slow yet constant pursuit of this one ant, endlessly crossing and recrossing the urban landscape. It is of course possible that this is one of many ants that he has randomly been following, but for some reason it seems unlikely. They would have to run in relay, which seems doubtful. When you or I walk the streets, how many ants do you find on the floor? Obviously you don't go out looking for them, but still. It would be reasonable to say that the amount of ants you personally could find would be fairly minimal. They are colony dwellers, thus have a set territory, and at some point they must return to base. So how do we explain the movements of this single pioneering ant? The question we face here is one of goals. Is the journey that the man seems to be on an end in itself, or alternatively, is there a destination? The vignette that we have so far offers no real information. The options are, then, as follows. 1. Philosophise on the nature of travel, seen as a concept, and try to derive meaning from the features explained in the text. Or, 2. Use this as a springboard to imagine possible conclusions. In the first instance, let us appraise the information so far. This person, who stands outside of society, embodying the aspects of the holy fool, as seen in the archetypal substructure of folktales and myths, this liminal character, in all his squalor, seems to be on a quest of sorts. But then, this could be a form of penance, a curse, something akin to the Sisyphean torments of pushing a rock up a hill daily. What, though, is the relevance of the insect? A virtually unseen hive-minded drone that is leading our protagonist on a drawn-out journey Does the ant represent one's place in society? Or, by its dislocation from the hive, does it embody the act of breaking away and following a solitary path of one's own volition? The man, passive as he is, seems strangely less important to the equation than the ant. He is mere follower, and so his function is just to bring a human element into the story. If one were to attempt to shoehorn in a lesson, what could be said? 
that the dishevelled broken man represents humanity, and the ant some unattainable goal? This allegory seems woefully basic. If the man and ant are both apart from their hive, then they are reflections of each other, two layers of resolution. They are both on the same course, but the insignificant ant is leading the man. True as it is, this seems like a dead end. Could it be that the mind of the man has transmigrated, that his consciousness is now embodied in the ant, which drags around his previous now spectral host like a giant meaty caravan? This would explain his personal emptiness as a character, and of course his lack of hygiene, as without mind he would be but an empty vessel. But again, if such is the case, is there any meaning we can drive from this? What is the actual point of telling such a story? Thus let us consider our previous stated second option. That is, an introductory passage from which we can create additional narratives to spiral off from. Perhaps the ant is in fact creating a hidden message or symbol, the way the GPS-connected joggers will draw out shapes of a penis or a face on Google Maps. Perhaps hidden, except from a bird's-eye view, within the geometries followed by a dynamic duo, lies a hidden message from whatever higher intelligence can make an ant-stroke-human centaur a tool of their communication. I, for one, would not buy this kind of thing. Sounds like late-series X-Files, basic. So where would he end up? In a comfy cul-de-sac? And reuniting with his estranged family? An optometry business? Where years before he committed some grievous error and so was sent out to wander nameless? Maybe he will return to a religious organisation, immediately appointing himself as their leader after his monk-like years of wandering, where enlightenment was finally attained. He holds huge seminars, inspiring the young and old alike with his sage-like wisdom. The cult spreads. They build a huge commune in rural Hampshire, and he becomes utterly corrupt by power, leading to mad orgies and exploitation. The ant might one day lead him to a vast cathedral-like anthill in the centre of a dark wood. Once there, his skin breaks open and billions of ants break through, home at last. All this time, he has been a biological cruise liner for a colony that as one moved his limbs and nourished themselves on his insides. Hmm. All these possibilities, yet no definitive answer. So we follow the man, following the ant, tracing its inexplicable route. Onward. You have been listening to Surplus Bulbs, written and produced by Ed Hicks, with music by Ed Hicks, featuring the voices of Anita Constantin, Fran Hicks and Steve Chatterton. If you wish to support this show, follow the links in the text to our Big Cartel shop, where you can find scenes, prints, original art and various paraphernalia. Good night.